Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the year of the final war, the war of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and fort, man was the lord of the earth. He made him an hollow skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever I might find you, animal, vegetable or mineral, whatever is your preference. Uh, Welcome to episode 22 of Agitators Anonymous. I'm Alan Averill. And first off, I suppose I should mention all the things I usually don't mention until the end when probably most of you aren't listening. But you can follow me on Instagram at nemtheanga underscore primordial. If you would like to go to the Primordial YouTube channel, um, there's some cool things happening there. Kieran is doing some guitar instruction videos, uh, explaining some of the songs. He's recently done a really strong episode on the Coffin Ships, how to play it, an instructional video. And it seems a bit of a shame we aren't moving a few more numbers. I guess that's how we all judge things now, sadly. Um, admittedly, we are most likely 10 years too late to the game to build a YouTube channel, but needs must when you ain't got that much else to do. However, anyway, yes, Kieran has made some great videos. There's a few other things. There's some bass instruction videos, a few other things. We can keep posting uh, random things, so maybe go over there and subscribe if you can. Um, there will be actually a few ad reads in this episode. Um, which is a necessity, I suppose, on some level to um, a financial necessity on, to some degree. So you'll, you'll, I'll just read them out. You can, you can think about something else. You can lie back and think of something more pleasurable. Um, so episode 22, what I'm going to do is last week we had, or I had a really cool chat with Andy Sneep 
from Sabat Hell, and now who's filling in uh, for Glenn Tipton and Judas Priest. It was a very heavy metal episode. Um, and by and large, generally, everybody seemed to like it. But I do get the feeling that maybe this time around, I should make a little bit of commentary, of discussion, of opinion, um, because we are six months into lockdown now, or a form of lockdown, or a pa the pandemic, or whatever you want to call it. Um, we are six months in, and I hate to say it, but I told you so. I told you so. Um, to be that person I is something that I really didn't want to be, but I did say a month or two into this when people were telling me, oh, you know, we're all going to come out all guns blazing. Everything's going to be reopened and it's going to be before the end of summer and we're reorganizing our gigs for September and October and November. Um, I suppose it's my natural born pessimism, but I sounded this note of caution and thought to myself, well, the freedoms that we're handing over to the state, um, which were, you know, kind of the backstory to what was happening um, to the initial lockdown, I thought to myself, the very nature of politics and what it what it is, um, I don't think we're going to get these things handed back to us all in one go, as some people seem to think. These are going to be drip, drip, drip fed to us, slowly but surely. And here we are in the Irish state. Um, six months in, we have still the most strict form of lockdown. People keep asking me how things are going in Ireland. And... The reality is we have 1,770 deaths in total. Um, I'm probably going to get the episode shadow banned or something for discussing these things. I don't know how it goes. I do know that the the rather bored mainstream media um, really looks to exacerbate and overplay every single small little bone of contention among people. And we're at the stage now where um, you can't even discuss something like masks. Uh, for example, um, you, you, you can't really discuss that. And I've seen in our own mainstream media um, presenters on the local, well, not the local, but the, the national um, broadcasting board are called RTE, Radio Telefisheren, um, official broadcasting arm of the state, Apparatus. Um, you know, presenters on, on, on RTE dragged through the mire for suggesting that maybe we should have a discussion on the science behind masks. The masks have become a strange token, a strange symbol, uh, a token of um, a form of tokenism, if you ask me, in that we have a very strange thing happening. And I've mentioned it before on the podcast about the group of people who are protesting within Ireland. And one of the problems with that group is that the optics are so strange. Having gone down to look, to just to observe myself, the optics are so strange. And I think most normal, I use that word sparingly, let's say most your common or garden Irish man or woman, vegetable or mineral, um, would find the optics of being at one of those protests a little bit difficult because there are so many fringe elements of it, which says, speaks a lot about Irish society. In another city, there might be 40 or 50,000 people demonstrating against um, authoritarian measures against their civil liberties or freedoms. But in Ireland, that's only one or 2,000 people. And they're mainly all of the fringe elements. Um, for whatever reason, Irish people in the body politic, in the main body politic, 
aren't coming out to protest these things or even to see what the protests are about. There seems like an abject, um, an abject level of incuriosity. Is that the word? No, it's not the word, is it? What am I talking about? People just don't even seem to be curious enough to show up and go, I wonder what they're talking about. So even amongst my oldest friends, there is an incredible disparity of opinion about, about even in our WhatsApp group, um, there's an incredible disparity of opinion among among six or seven or eight guys who know each other for 30 years, at least some of us, um, who grew up together in the same area, we're the same language, ethnicity. We went to the same um, institutions, state institutions and schools. Theoretically, you might think there would be more consensus amongst our opinion, but we are arguing like cats and dogs about these things. And you can see, for example, some of the I think the tokenism of the debate, let's say on masks, is framed as an anti-hygiene protest. Um, when in reality, if you go down and look at the people who are protesting, most of them are holding signs about civil liberties, about personal freedoms, about arguments and debates that are intrinsic to our well-being as, as, as of our civilization, our civil liberties, big questions, big existential questions about uh, everything from track and trace um, technology to tr the travel corridor. I mean, the fact is we handed over an incredible amount of power to the institutions of the state to the point now where even in the UK, you can see where people are in this kind of household bubble um, statute, um, which Essentially, you know, you distill that down to is it controlling people's sex lives even, who they can and cannot meet? There's there's some rule about hotel rooms our government, I'm sure, has sat down and thought about the same. And so you're adding, entering into some really strange Woody Allen-type territory, whatever the... I can't remember the, the movie about sex, the name of it. I will, no doubt, in 20 minutes when you're not listening to what I'm talking about. But the point being that... Um, we are being told you can, you know, who you can socialize with, when and where, until what time you have to spend this much money. These are the countries that you can travel to. We're going to tell you where and when you can send your kids. And, you know, we, we handed over an awful lot of power to people who were not used to that. And I often think of a sentence which is don't put down to malice what you can to incompetence. And I try and view many of the things through that frame and I was trying to think of some clever analogy about it and I was thinking to myself you know is it a horse on the horizon because it looks like a horse or is it a zebra when you get up closer <laughs> wow isn't that great isn't that a great analogy um, no my point being that um, not everything I put down to the creeping hand of authoritarianism I think a part of it is cronyism a part of it is cute whorism which I'll explain which is a very Irish concept in that cute whoreism, and I don't mean whore as in W-H-O-R-E, I mean H-O-O-R. How do I explain this? It's a kind of form of a social sneakiness. It's a form of getting around the rules in a kind of cheeky way. It's a very Irish thing. Um, like we have this thing called slagging, you know. Now you may know slagging from working down uh, the coal pits, for example, in the 1870s, the slag heap. That would have been extricated from um, your mining efforts, or maybe you don't. 
maybe you, you know, it's a derogatory term for a woman who lives on the next street. Either way, uh, slagging is, you know, mocking. It's like, it's roasting, I guess what you would call it now. Anyway, Q-tourism is getting around the rules in a kind of sneaky, not illegal way. It's the, it's it's trying to explain it to a German is absolutely unfathomable for them. It's it's finding a way round rules that you think you can bend and stretch. Um, it's you know it's Irish people's relationship to their taxes. It's all of these things, and the fact is that um, six months into this. It's very clear that our state doesn't trust us. They don't trust us to, for example, not have to eat when we go out to the pub. I mean, the pub now, all of you have ever, have all, no matter where you're listening to me. In fact, 30 of you are listening to me in the Dominican Republic, which I think is amazing. More people than in Russia and Italy. So please book your game up, Russia and Italy. And if you're listening to me in the Dominican Republic, please send me a message. I want to know what's going on there. what am I talking about? Anyway, yeah, so the point is that cute whorism as a definition is a really strange thing. Now, we vote for our politicians. This is called democracy. We vote for them to make the difficult decisions. We don't vote for them in this process to tell us, ah, lads, we don't really trust you. We don't really trust you to uh, to not pile in the pints and, you know, get a bit touchy-feely and spitting in each other's faces, etc., etc. I don't mean spitting in each other's faces. I mean, you know, you've all been in an Irish pub where the music's too loud, where everybody's screaming in each other's ears after eight pints. Although the chances of that now are pretty remote that you're going to be up dancing to loud music. In fact, that's been part of the requirements. It's part of the, I suppose, the contract that certain pubs have undertaken, and that is there ain't going to be no loud music. But I'll get on to that. I'll get on to that discussion about live music. Reminds me somehow of a gig Primordial played on a tour with uh, one of those pagan crusade tours or pagan something or other, pagan hokey pokey tours. And uh, we did a tour with Fintroll. And it was um, it was Easter, Easter Sunday, I think. And it was in Bavaria in um, the backstage in Munich and a, um, the local... Christians had decided that uh, on that evening there shall be no dancing there shall be no frivolity and there shall be no fun and the gig had to start at midnight and work backwards so the opening band um, had to play at 4 or 5 in the morning and we had to make an announcement and the crowd basically just sat in the backstage waiting for the gig to start at 12 because the local community had outlawed dancing so it reminds you a little bit of uh, a little bit ISIS-y doesn't it Anyway, yeah, but what am I talking about? Back to the back to the back to the main overarching narrative. My point is that it's clear that our government doesn't trust us. Now, do they not trust us by definition of a form of authoritarianism? I'm not. I don't exactly buy that. I think the idea that there's an, a one overarching narrative behind all this, one massive Machiavellian plot and we're all in on it is mathematically unlikely. So what we have is a mixture of these things, a mixture of incompetence and a form of, you know, um, manipulation uh, that follows afterwards. I think that if we are considering these things as a causation, 
to have caused all of this as one art overarching narrative. I don't believe that. Anyway, well, I'm not going to get bogged down in all that conspiracy stuff. Um, I'll leave that for, again, 20 minutes when you're not listening. So the point is that we have this thing here now called hashtag this is who we are. And um, I tacitly support this. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a movement about trying to crack open Ireland for at least some form of uh, entertainment, the arts. The arts has literally been left on the vine to die by the state. Um, we're first to close and we will be last to open. There doesn't seem to be any roadmap of how this can happen. And I'm going to come on to how this is going to affect the music industry and how this is affecting heavy metal and some of the gigs that have been happening in the last two weeks. But firstly, I'll tell you what's going on in my own state of Frankenstein. This house, oh no, that was more of a vampire voice, wasn't it? Hmm. Anyway, the point is that right now our government has laid out a six-month plan. We can't really call it a roadmap as it doesn't really have a map to it. Um, it's just a road heading in the same direction. A six-month plan, which seems to me to be incredibly um, short-sighted considering that the very nature of the lockdown that we're in is surely a fluid situation. The science could change in two weeks or, well, or, or some science could come in to inform us of something new. <clears throat> so laying out a six-month plan uh, just seems to not make any sense in the context of, a, uh, of this fluid and strange situation that we're in. It just doesn't make any sense. But there you go. Welcome to Ireland, um, the home of the cute whore. But what this six-month plan has basically done is it said, right, lads, you have no nightlife. The curfew is at 11. So that means there is no there is no gigs, there is no clubs, there won't be any DJ nights, there won't be any theatre and there won't be any comedy. Or they might be very, very sparsely attended, um, distanced nights. But I've heard things that from the state saying, oh, look, you will have your live music. But what they really mean is... Um, somebody in the corner playing Ed Sheeran covers behind a screen while everybody stuffs their faces and eats 20, 25 euro meals. They don't actually mean live music. So anyone, any musicians, and there is almost 40,000 people working in this sector uh, from sound engineers to lighting people to camera. Um, uh, you know who I mean. Um, you're probably one of them. The local bar that you work in um, the rock or punk or metal bar is uh, probably shut as well, no matter what country you're in. So there's tens and thousands of hundreds of thousands, millions of people, most likely in this industry now, who are literally on the edge of, you know, the edge of 17 or whatever. No, come on. Um, so the government has laid out a six-month plan. And while they were in the middle of doing this, our health minister uh, decided he felt a little bit ill and had to go and take a COVID test in the middle of the kind of evening of presentation, kind of like disappearing, uh, you know, in the in the intermission and returning um, to get to take a COVID test. How how have all politicians in the state not been tested already? You would have thought that was a prerequisite for stepping foot in our parliament, which is called the doll. You would have thought that was a kind of no-brainer, wouldn't you? Well, no, seemingly not. They interrupted the evening. A complete farce. I mean, a, you know, um, complete ealing farce of a 
of an evening. Now, there's an old school reference, Ealing, Ealing comedies. You need to go back and look at that. That's like black and white movies from the 50s, uh, 60s. Who never, whoever said I wasn't in touch with the pulse of, uh, of youth? Um, you know, and I'm not just talking about cuties either. Uh, yes, Ealing farce. It was a complete farce. And Ireland, well, Dublin is between two points on the scale, between two and three. And so it's completely unclear as to whether we can go to the pub anymore or not. And it's all very strange because what it says to me is that our state was quite willing or has been quite willing to let um, the arts just die on the vine and to make no roadmap for opening. There, there are, I haven't heard of a single gig, a single band playing even with a squared off floor and distanced and not one. Um, I haven't heard of a anybody playing off the back of a truck in a field on some private land uh, with a generator. Haven't heard about that. Now, part of me wonders, is it because Irish people lack the imagination? Do they? Or do they lack the willpower that maybe in some other countries um, they have in, in trying to crack this nut open? Because for sure, I think that the Irish state, or very least elements of the public, would not really be that bothered if live music just disappeared off their horizon. I think probably most people, especially young people, don't give a shit about it. Um, but I think Germans do. And I think this is also displayed or exemplified in the oddness of our protests. The fact that our protests only look like the lunatic fringe, whereas in other countries, regular people are just showing up to go, can we have our freedoms back? Whereas here, it's, um, you know, there's a man at the end of my road who lets all the pigeons feed on him and hundreds of pigeons come down and feed on him. He was in the protest holding um, some form of a banner about something equivocally outrageous. Are you going to stand beside him at the protest? Probably not. But anyway, what it points to is the fact that I think uh, Irish people are taking all of this, most definitely lying down, or at the very least with a sort of a sigh and a shrug of the shoulders and a, eh, well, sure, what can you do? But when your government lays out a six-month plan, when we are having, I think, four or five deaths per week, and the average age of death is 84 years old, you got to ask some questions. You really do have to ask some questions about the wisdom, about the logic. And what I've been thinking, I've been thinking quite a lot about this for the last week or two. And what I realize is that, what I realize is that, oh, what I realize is that the movie I was trying to reference is called Sleeper. It's an early 70s movie by Woody Allen. It's where the word orgasmatron came from. Of course, if you should know your motorhead, shame on you if you do not. Strange sounding record, orgasmatron. However, anyway, yeah, the orgasmatron was like a uh, a booth, a sex booth or something like this. I suppose a little bit of a, um, it could be a flashlight for all you incels out there listening to me. Um, yeah, and there's confessional robots and modern, you know, what sex has been replaced by all sorts of contraptions. Um, you know, no doubt you could go back and watch it and think to yourself, by God, Woody Allen was a prophet among other things. Anyway, we are dealing with, let's say, a medieval disease um, with modern, in a, in a moder modern technological framework, i.e. social media and all of that kind of thing. 
with political institutions that are 50 to 100 years old that aren't designed for someone to step out of line with reason and rationality. In some countries, maybe. In some um, cold, stoic northern countries, perhaps. I'm sure there's a Finnish politician who stood up and explained to everybody in rational terms. But the problem is, is that the the problem is is that nobody, no health expert, no politician will come out and say, "Look, let's be rational and realistic about this. Well, you're going to have to trust the public to take risk into your own hands. Don't be idiots. Things aren't as bad as they looked for the first month or two of this. You lock down. Now we're going to trust you with handing some of your civil liberties back. Don't be idiots. And let's be rational about looking at what some of the numbers are." And when, the, when, for example, the average age of death in Ireland is 84, you've got to, you really should look at some of the mathematics or the statistics or the analysis behind that number. But nobody is willing to do that because if they have 10 or 20 or 30 deaths in their local region, they won't get re-elected. So everyone is in the cycle of re-election and also in the cycle of fearing to be cancelled, fearing to be dragged across the hot coals and screamed out on social media that you said this and the minor opposite was true. You said it was going to be, you said it wasn't going to be that bad and here we are with 20 deaths in the local regional infirmary or whatever. No one wants to take that risk because no one, because the the personal jeopardy is seems to be too great to take that risk. And so therefore we're in this cycle of negation, this this cycle of disinformation, this cycle of cowardice, let's be honest. But I understand it to a point. But nobody, I haven't seen a health professional come out and go, look, you know what? I don't think this is bad as what we thought, at least not on our mainstream media. Uh, I haven't seen anybody come out and say, OK, look, we're going to trust you, the public. You voted for us. It's a democratic process. We're going to trust you not to be idiots and to take risk into your own hands. This is not what's happening. And one of the reasons why, I think, is because the personal jeopardy to the people involved in trying to manage this situation is so great that in the back of their minds, they're thinking, I can't be that guy or that woman who ends up in three months time having mud flung at them in the market square when they're in the stocks because there was a spike in deaths or maybe the second act is coming and they get blamed. So what I think is that they're playing the long game. They're playing the long game with a short circumstance. And the long game basically means waiting for a vaccine. And that's where I think we are realistically sitting. We are sitting in this situation. Um, And I hate to be, like I said, that I told you so guy, but I told you so. Um, now, I did say some things way back at the beginning of this in the podcast, um, for example, about wokeness and all that kind of stuff that I thought might it might take a bit of a backseat while other people while people had, um, you know, other problems, which turned out to be <laughs> slightly incorrect. But I did say to people at the time and I did. I'm pretty sure in the podcast say this is going to drag on and on and on. And I also thought people, as I said, who were who were reorganizing gigs and stuff um, for September, October and later this year, I thought they were foolish. And I do.
So I'm going to try my first ad read. Bear with me, ladies and gentlemen. It might even interest you. You think to yourself, the heyday of the 1920s, the heyday of haute couture, expensive, fashionable clothes produced by leading fashion houses is what the original description is. Now, let's take away the you, and what do you get? You get hate couture. Who could want anything better in heavy metal terms than hate couture? Hateful, but yet tasteful clothing. Yeah, you got it. So, www.hatecouture, which is H-A-T-E, well, you know how to spell that, C-O-U-T-U-R-E 616.com. Go there. These are the official sponsors of Agitators Anonymous now, and you are going to find lots of lots of interesting and nasty apparel, lots of serial killer T-shirts, lots of rather amusing and dark of center zips, fashion hoodies, this kind of thing. Um, just a casual look, and you can find... A few tasteful Jeffrey Dahmer shirts, Edward Kemper. I see a few things like this straight off the, the Black Dahlia. A few nice references to Robespierre and the French Revolution and all this kind of stuff. So, Hate Couture, Hate Couture 616. You can follow on Instagram as well. Just think back to your days in the 1920s when you were hanging out with, I don't know, Marlena Dietrich doing opium to a jazz band, something like this. Um, and remember those heady fashion days where you were wearing the leading fashion house apparel. Now take away the you hate couture. Go and have a look. And yeah, you're going to be spending some of your hard-earned lockdown money. God damn it, they even have Vlad Tepe's backpacks some sweet hangman's chair t-shirts uh, there's also shirts by some bands Carpathian Forest amongst others um, so go and have a look www.hatecouture616.com hate couture there you go ladies and gentlemen so that's my um, random potted opinion of what's happening. Um, I thought it would be a good idea to maybe try and address some of it because things are moving at different speeds throughout the European Union, throughout different countries. I mean, and this is, um, let's start talking about what this means for <clears throat> the music industry and live gigs. Um, I mean, two weeks ago, Cult of Fire from Czech Republic played a sold out gig in Prague to five or six hundred people with no distancing. Okay, people had masks, but no distancing. Now, I don't know how that worked with drinking, because I know in Ireland people wouldn't go to a gig without drinking. Um, but maybe there was a an area at the back where people could drink. I don't know. I spoke to the drummer of Cult of Fire about it, and he said, yeah, there was no no track and trace elements. They, they didn't have to have temperature settings when people came in, um, and there was no hassle from the state. Take a little look into that. Um, and it would seem that Czech Republic haven't had a lockdown since April the 10th. April the 10th? And we're still in ours? April the 10th. And they're mostly surviving as normal. I haven't heard anybody in our media discuss that. In fact, 
being the 53rd state here in Ireland, um, you know, where American and Europe, American and English cultural hegemony has ruled over our consciousness for so many decades. I mean, it's, it's a language thing. But I haven't heard anyone in our media go, oh, I wonder what's happening in Czech Republic, in Denmark, where there also has been no lockdown since April, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. What's happening in Hungary, in Romania, in Bulgaria? How are these countries coping? And how come we haven't heard catastro- the, the catastrophism and the, 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 the we haven't all we hear is what's happening in states in America or England. How come nobody in our media is going, well, Denmark has roughly a similar population. Um, let's examine how they've been dealing with this. And it would seem they've been dealing with it well and not allowing the arts, for example, to die on the vine. Oh, Alan, isn't there something better you could be concerned with? Well, look, I'm an artist. What do you want? Anyway. Well, I mean, that's um, that's up for question. But the point being that I don't hear our media discussing what's happening in those countries, um, which would be far more relevant because many of them have a similar population. Uh, comparing a country like Ireland, which roughly the south of Ireland has maybe 4 million people, 4.4, whatever it is, uh, with a country like America that is 325 million or something, um, doesn't make any sense to me but I get it it provides us with um, the scaremongering intent of the red tops of the tabloids Um, it's killing again says the tabloid and then you look at the numbers and it's four Um, you know and again other things I digress for a minute before going into the gigs thing but I haven't heard anyone talk about how many suicides are directly correlated to this in the in Ireland. We always did very well. Males, 18 to 28, we were in the top 10 for quite a long time back in the 90s. Um, and I, I presume we're still pretty well up there, you know. Um, I haven't heard anyone discuss that. Levels of child abuse going through the roof, uh, you know, calls into Samaritans, that kind of thing. Uh, people not taking essential treatments, cancer patients not going in for their treatments. I was listening to some cancer specialist on a podcast only last week who was saying that the deluge of um, undiscovered cancer that's going to literally swamp the health surface in the next two or three years by people avoiding going in for tests, by people not getting checked up, is going to be in the hundreds and thousands, if not millions, across many, many countries. And, you know, here's an expert in the field, and he was very 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 worried and it's not hard to see why because people aren't going in for regular and normal checkups even trying to get to see a doctor in the flesh is hard enough they all want to do phone phone consultations well you can see the problems without really even having to think about it too hard but these are the repercussions these are going to be the repercussions of what's happening and I don't really hear anyone really talking about them. Anecdotally, I can say that um, I've seen this with my own eyes, people afraid to go into hospital. So who's talking about the alternate death toll, which is the people who are dying um, because of the lockdown, um, as opposed to the people dying because of the virus? I would 
I, as a non-betting man, would imagine there are more people every week dying of other complications. Dying of not taking that essential surgery. Now, don't hold me to that or cut that up into a meme or... Can you cut that up into a meme? Whatever. You know what I'm getting at. Point is, point is, never put down to incompetence or never put down to malice what you can to a competence. It's a complicated sentence because what if they have the same outcome for you personally? Either way. Anyway, so there has been gigs. Uh, Vader, um, the old war horses from Poland, have done a tour. They've done a tour of Europe, as I understand. Ten days I spoke to some of the crew and engineers who attended some of their gigs. And they're doing, they're playing like 120 to 180 people in 500 to 800 venues, seated, distanced. Some of them are seated. I think some of them are people standing in squares. So you can't do what you would normally do at a Vader gig and, you know, mosh, whatever. I always hated that word. Um, You can't do that. Uh, So... But Vader got in their van, their bus, whatever. They, I'm pretty sure Massive Music owns the tour bus. Got in their tour bus and just decided, fuck it, let's go. And did 10 or 12 socially distanced dates. And it worked. I mean, obviously, of course, you know, they can just drive from Poland across to all those dates. And the money you earn in Poland is worth more than it would be in Ireland, for example. But more power to them. They, they're, they're, they're helping to try and keep at least something moving some parts some cogs in the machine oiled and moving and not completely rusted and falling to ruin Um, and more power to them now whether it was actually satisfying from an audience perspective other people I posted a thing on Facebook tell me have you been to a show have you played a show how is it and I got a lot of responses there's been small black metal shows to seated people um Last weekend, Belfagor and um, Pungent Stench, I think, played on the side of the mountain where the Sonnenwende, Funkenflug, uh, you know, the, the, the famous mountain in Austria. Um, the famous and holy mountain. And there was a gig there. And it seems to have been a few hundred people. It seems to have been, seems to have gone off without without any problems but it was on private land I don't know is that the future it's very hard to say I mean I have to admit that I've become vaguely um, vaguely sort of emotional I suppose a bit like a uh, you know vaguely emotional watching live shows of bands even though it's only six or seven months since I played a gig watching the likes of Motorhead or the Ramones or some of those kind of shows from the late 70s and early 80s. And there is a part of me that wonders, I don't think it's going to be like that ever again. And on those terms, I think to myself, well, you had 29 good years. 29 good years, yeah. Uh, well, you know, you had a good swing at it. Imagine you were a band who was, all this was supposed to be happening to this year, your first tour, your first festivals and everything. The whole rug got pulled from under you. But the point is that across Europe, there's been efforts. Um, I know... Uh, a band called Death Barrel in Norway did three or four dates. Now we're talking 30 to 40 to 50 people. The point is, and I've said it before on the podcast, is that you can, for bands who are pulling, let's say, 25 to 75 people, you can probably work out a structure where you can play local gigs in different areas um, and travel 
you're not expecting to make any money anyway. And so it's a real underground show. Um, so I would imagine, you know, a lot of small underground operators who aren't working into one, two, three hundred numbers could theoretically organize a small tour. Um, but for the, let's say, the likes of Primordial, where you're talking three to six or seven hundred, um, it just doesn't work at a 20% cap because a 500 venue, at 20% cap, you know, obviously you're talking about having to book a two or three thousand capacity venue. And there really aren't any. I mean, at least in Ireland, it goes from 1600 up to about 10,000. Those middle sized bands who pull two, three thousand people. There's very few venues there that are that size anymore. It just doesn't, they just don't really exist. So, and also the financial restrictions on doing that as part of a tour would be almost impossible because those venues would have to take a massive hit on their booking fees. So, we might end up in a really strange situation where you can have, you might have gigs on private land or people willing to break the rules. A few countries like Czech Republic, maybe off the top of my head, Poland, Russia, Ukraine, I don't know, um, Greece maybe, and very big bands might do residencies, almost like Las Vegas style where you sit and you eat, but tickets are going to be two or three hundred euro for your one of your, I don't know, Roger Waters is going to do a three week stay in um, some venue or two weeks. This could logically work for a huge band. Could Primordial play a seated distance show? I mean, theoretically, theoretically, the music is that gloomy and involved. I think it might be okay in a certain setting, like, say, maybe playing seated in a church or seated in an old auditorium. I could see that roughly. Um, it's not really how I want to make heavy metal or how I want to play, but I could just about see that. I have said that I'll refuse to do the empty room gig to no one scenario I'm not going to do that um, I, that just seems too depressing to countenance you know um, however there was one online show that maybe might tell us a little bit more about the future than we would like to imagine and that was the creator online stream um, for VAC and Open Air I don't know if any of you saw this I mean I got to give it up to 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 Vakin in that their whole streaming setup was so professional and so outrageously <laughs> well done um even if not entirely my thing but I don't know if you took a look at it but basically creator are more or less playing in what looks like a computer game um I imagine it's a this technology is probably outdated but uh, it's like as if they're playing on a stage that's fundamentally a green screen not really a green screen, but you know what I mean. And so you have CGI'd flames, a CGI'd crowd, CGI backdrop. Um, all I, I mean, I'm sure it's a stage with lights and all that kind of stuff. But there's all this other stuff overlaid onto it. And it looked like, well, let's say this game called Fortnite, which I've never seen. I don't even know what it is. Um, I know what it is. I'd never seen it. But I know that my cousin was playing it and he was discussing a year or two ago about how a DJ did a set within the game and you had to be on that level at that time in the game and it apparently is the biggest or largest attended music event of all time he told me um, he's now uh, too old for that and 
his voice has dropped and he wants to be Conor McGregor. But um, back when, you know, Fortnite was hot, this was what they were all, all the teenagers were talking, all the teenagers were talking about. Um, and this creator stream somehow brought that to mind. It was, I mean, more power to creator for trying for trying it. Um, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to talk to Millet about the experience, but um, it did look very strange. And the truth is that people keep saying to musicians, there's an economy out there, there's an online economy out there, you know. And I keep trying to tell people that it's, that it's not about that, that it's agency and purpose. And I would go on tour for nothing right now. I would, I could quite happily live on the breadline and just go and have purpose in the world. Um, being a carpenter without wood is a pretty difficult situation. Whatever you want to see. I just compared myself to Jesus. Uh, what I mean is something quite different. But the point is that what Creator did there, um, you can only do once. I mean, if let's say there was a venue in Dublin and Primordial could put all our gear there and come down and record um, record enough songs. I don't know, we have tons of songs. We could make three or four or five different sets. I mean, the reality is they all look the same. Um, that's an online experience. You can only really sell, in parenthesis, to people once. It doesn't really work that you can keep returning to the well with the same online experience. So I don't really think there is an online economy there for bands. Um, certainly the, 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 the show we gave to the European Metal Festival Alliance, um, I mean, the stall was set out and there isn't really an economy for bands within that framework. So on those terms, the hashtag, this is who we are, um, and you can you know, have a search of that, as I said, first to close, last to reopen, no roadmap and no support, um, specifically about Ireland, but I think you can take elements of it for whatever, wherever you may be, um, is that this whole situation is potentially terminal or at least very, very, a very strong body blow for the arts. Um, as one of the things that I've been thinking about also is that... Um, Let's call it counterculture, alternative culture, the things that resonate with us. Um, a lot of it tends to be, and let's be honest here, it tends to be somewhat middle-aged. I mean, I would wonder, I would really wonder um, in six months' time, let's say in nine months' time, I would really wonder if next summer there is a rock bar or an indie bar. We have a very famous indie bar in Ireland called Whelan's, which is like sort of ground zero for all of our 1980s indie rock scene. Um, and it's a great bar. It's a great venue. It's an old um, wood-stained kind of um, dark and gloomy venue. Not quite a dive bar. We don't really do dive bars in Ireland. That's something to our detriment. It's a very American thing. We don't really do that. But it's a great bar. And how can it survive? How can it survive? And it might, maybe in nine months' time, it's just gone. And so therefore, I mean, the one rock bar there isn't, you know, well, there's a few rock bars. There was a few rock bars in Dublin, but Brussels, the famous one with the fill in its statue outside. Uh, is that realistic going to reopen without serving food? And what is the purpose of them trying to keep digging the hole to play rock and roll? When the reality is, is that nobody's going to be in the city centre 
spending money the same way they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, people's jobs are going to take them, they're going to be working from home. So they're not going to be milling around the city centre at five or six in the evening and go, you know what, I'll go in for a pint, which turns into in Ireland the session. And the, the texts go around, ah, we're in, the, we're, in, we're in Whelan's for a pint, blah, blah, blah. And this is a very middle-aged thing because I see it in my younger cousins and teenage relatives. Um, they don't they don't drink like this. They don't have any interest in socializing like this. They barely even really seem to like music. They like songs here and there, but other things are important to them. And I don't think that live music dying on the vine is really going to affect them that much. They're not they really aren't that bothered. Um, now, maybe that's a disservice to young people, but it would seem to me that the old fashioned way of people meeting and socializing and gathering that that thing that is the Irish pub culture. But more specifically, take my words and apply them to your own city, your own town. And let's say um, now some countries will fare better than others. But let's say in six months time, things are still dragging on. There's no nightlife. There's still kind of distanced gigs and people can't really gather in the local and it's not just heavy metal it's punk rock it's indie it's whatever you're even an industrial bar I don't know does that exist um, you get my point how are they going to survive in 6, 9, 12 months um, I would wager that an awful lot of them are going to disappear because the clientele is generally a little bit older a little bit more middle aged and now we have stricter financial terms and you're not in the city going to spend your money and how does how does that meeting place survive and when that's gone how does a scene regenerate itself that's what i would really i've been sort of thinking about this the last well I've, look i've got time to think about everything don't i um i've been thinking about that for quite a lot quite often the last while is that i mean i had a good run of it i can't complain but at the same time for somebody who's just starting off in uh, some underground, you know, band at 22, 23, 24, and they're, they're thinking of having a career and cutting their teeth in the local live scene and all the things that I got to do. And there might be nowhere for them to plug in and play. There might be no stage for them. And I think that that's terribly sad because that is, counterculture is, uh, or not counterculture, but alternative culture on, its, on those terms. Um, maybe you're in a small town in somewhere in the east of Germany and it's a punk rock bar and you know there's it's not a huge endeavor but 50 to 100 people keep that bar going and there's gigs here and there what if it goes what happens to the scene what happens to that scene all around the world and like I said if next year's festival culture live music season begins to be affected in the ways we've just outlined uh, I think we could be in some very serious trouble. Now, if you know me and you've been listening to the podcast, you probably realized by now that I err on the side of pessimism. Um, and look, listen, I'm sure you could find a report from my school at 12 to say he's a dour little bastard. And um, they weren't wrong. So, you know, if the hat fits or the hood fits, um, wear it and all that kind of thing. However, I would do worry. I, I would do worry. I would worry as to how these subcultures survive. So on that rather pessimistic note, I suppose I'm going to love you and leave you, darlings. 
Um, that was episode 22 of Agitators Anonymous. But I would say maybe keep an eye out on what's happening with your local bar, your local scene, your local hangout place, because these are the places that you came from, that you were able to go and meet younger, when you were younger, and a scene grew out of them. And who knows, they, they could be on the they could be on the way out. And with that, a scene won't get any regeneration. Anyway, you got my point. So episode 22, Agitators Anonymous. So as you could see, if you got this far, I am taking ad reads and sponsors. If you think that you have a company or a, an endeavor that suits the podcast, and I will say the numbers move, they move, and people listen for a long time. I suppose um, it's what you call a micro-influencer or something like this, as in someone can have 200 thousand followers on Instagram who just look at pictures of their bum but will they listen to them try and sell them the Financial Times? That is the question. Well, the question is that um, you reprobates out there listen. So if you think you got something to sell get in touch. Episode 22, Agitators Anonymous, follow me on all the things that are following me, etc., um, etc. Et Remember, metal never bends, my friends. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.